takes on the role of the spiritual gifts in the public worship of God, beginning with verse 26. Here is the infallible, inspired, and errant word of God. What is the outcome then, brethren? When you assemble, each one has a psalm, has a teaching, has a revelation, has a tongue, has an interpretation. Let all things be done for edification. If anyone speaks in a tongue, it should be by two, or at the most three, and each in turn, and one must interpret. But if there's no interpreter, he must keep silent in the church and let him speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others pass judgment. But if a revelation is made to another who is seated, the first one must keep silent. For you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and be exhorted. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, as in all of the churches of the saints, the women are to keep silent in the churches. For they're not permitted to speak, but are to subject themselves just as the law says. If they desire to learn anything, let them ask their own husbands at homes. For it's improper for a woman to speak in church. Was it from you that the word of God first went forth? Or has it come to you only? If anyone thinks he's a prophet or spiritual, let him recognize the things that I write to you are the Lord's commandment. But if anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. Therefore, my brethren, desire earnestly to prophesy, and do not forbid to speak in tongues, but all things must be done properly and in an orderly manner. May God add his rich blessing to the reading of his holy word. Let's ask for his help to understand. O Lord, make us have perpetual love and reverence for your holy name. For you never fail to help and govern those whom you have set upon the sure foundation of your loving kindness in Jesus. It's to him we pray, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. You may be seated. I know we've joked about this quite a bit around here in the past at different times. Um... Uh, saying that uh, really the theme verse of Presbyterianism is found right here in 1 Corinthians 14.40. To do everything decently and in an orderly manner. So if you're just looking for an explanation or justification for almost anything we do in Reformed or Presbyterian churches, you just cite, let everything be done decently in an orderly manner. So if you want to know why we worship differently than the church down the street, well... The proof text is ready at hand. All things are being decently in order. If you want to know why we have different policies, a different government, we do different things in our churches, the uh, response is ready at hand. God says we do all things decently and in an orderly manner. And now, obviously, we have more answers than that. I say this tongue-in-cheek, but there is some truth to it. Uh, I just for grins giggled up, or rather giggled up, googled up, uh, this particular phrase, decently and in order in Presbyterians. And uh, I was amused to find that uh, untold thousands of websites had these words in uh, Presbyterian church websites. And uh, they ranged from everything from the most extreme liberal to moderate to ultimately conservative churches. This is certainly a theme verse. But what does it mean? What does it mean? And obviously, uh, we're going to have to unfold this in in more detail this morning. But just a snapshot or summary of it is this. 
When Paul says here that we are to worship uh, properly in an orderly manner, he is saying that the church is to worship according to the regulative principle. It's to worship according to the regulative principle of worship. And, and that is outlined in the Word of God and is summarized in our confessions. And it is basically this, that when we worship God, we are to worship Him in no other way than He has commanded us to in His Word. We could restate that and rephrase it in a positive way. We are to do only what God has commanded in His Word, nothing else. And you can see the connection between the law of God being the regulative principle of our worship and uh, this principle stated in verse 40, all things have been properly and in an orderly manner because the Apostle Paul himself says this at the end of verse 37, making the connection. He says, the things that I write to you are the Lord's commandments. You see, he is applying what this principle is Worshiping properly and in an orderly manner, and he is saying, underneath this is the regulative principle. We are to do what Christ commands us in his word. The problem is in Corinth, it wasn't going that way. And so, as we unfold the regulative principle, or also the principle of verse 40, all things being done properly and in an orderly manner. It might look just a little bit different to us this morning because the apostle is applying it to the situation of how to use supernatural gifts of the Holy Spirit in the worship of God. But the principle is the same, and there's much for us to learn this morning about our own worship. Let's begin this morning by looking at uh, verse 26 as Paul begins to talk about the application of this principle to worship. And let's see what it looks like. That's point number one. What does the regulative principle, or rather, what does it look like when the church does all things properly and in an orderly manner? Now, let's look at some words here just to put ourselves in the right frame of mind as we think about what Paul is saying. He says, what is the outcome then? Paul is looking at this issue of spiritual gifts. And he's saying, now, how does this all apply? That's what the words mean. What is the outcome then? You'll remember that in verses 1 through 12, he covered the gift of prophecy. Arguing for the primacy of prophecy because prophecy doesn't need to be interpreted from most of the hearers in the audience who are Greek speaking. They immediately hear God speaking to them in their own language. But he says, if you're going to use tongues, you have to interpret them. And that's what he begins to speak about in verses 13 and following. You have to, if you speak in tongues, you have to interpret them. Otherwise, it's meaningless to those who are gathered together for worship. Now, Paul takes up the strands of these gifts and says, now, let's apply it to the specific situation of public worship. And we know he's talking about public worship because he says in verse 26, when you assemble... There's no other way to interpret the word, but to refer, uh, to see that Paul is referring to the public worship of God. Now, here's the problem. You can see it's pretty easy to see in your translation. It says, each one has a psalm, each one has a teaching, each one has a revelation, each one has a tongue, each one has an interpretation. You can see from the litany of terms that the Apostle Paul is identifying a major problem in the Corinthian worship. It's chaotic. It's in disarray. It's in disarray because people who are blessed or gifted with these supernatural capacities 
by the Holy Spirit are using them in a completely unlawful, chaotic manner. It it seems as if what's happening is when they gather together for worship, uh, these people with their various gifts are just sort of spouting off randomly, and it's not even organized chaos. Look at some of the terms, and we'll come back to see how Paul works his way through this particular problem and applies order to it. You see, this word, uh, first of all, has a psalm. It's difficult to decide what Paul is speaking about. That's the honest truth. Why? Because every time that word is used in the New Testament, basically, it refers to a psalm from the book of Psalms. But if you read that in this passage, it's hard to make sense of it. Uh, then Paul would be saying, uh, or apparently on that interpretation, that someone is showing up for church uh, every Sunday with their own favorite psalm that they want the whole congregation to see. I think that's difficult, especially because the whole flow of the context is about supernatural spiritual gifts, and particularly because the rest of the terms in verse 26 clearly refer to things that are the result of the Holy Spirit uh, exercising His gifts through His people. So I think a better interpretation of that idea of each one has a psalm is something similar to what we've seen over here in chapter 14, verse 15, where he talks about singing in the Spirit. I think this is somehow some supernaturally indicted praise in the form of a tongue. That's clearly what Paul says it is over in verse 15 and 16. Somebody is speaking in one of the modes of a tongue. You could speak in a tongue, you could pray in a tongue, or you could sing in a tongue. And I just think that that makes the most sense of this. I I wouldn't be hard and fast or dogmatic, but I think that makes the most sense. So he says, each one has a psalm. Somebody has uh, a capacity to engage in praise publicly uh, through the gifting of the Holy Spirit. Then you have uh, the next term, each has a teaching. And this is obvious, uh, some sort of supernaturally communicated doctrine, uh, some divinely revealed truth, which is necessary for the church to be instructed in. Then he says, has a revelation. Uh, this is clearly referring to uh, some sort of a divine opening of the mind to uh, receive divine truth and then to communicate it to the saints. He says each one has a tongue. Each one has a tongue. That's the same word, glossa, that we have been looking at for several months now. It's obviously the communication of the gospel truth in a foreign language not native to the speaker. In other words, we've said this repeatedly, but it bears repeating again, that the person who is doing this, the person who is speaking in that tongue, has never studied it before. They have never studied that language before, and somehow they have been equipped with a capacity by the Holy Spirit to communicate the gospel in that language that they have never studied. So that those who spoke a language contrary or opposite the Greek language or different from the Greek language uh, would be able to hear the gospel in their own tongue. We defended that very carefully from the book of Acts and from a number of linguistic uh, angles, and I think that's a solid interpretation. So you have a situation of somebody coming and speaking in a tongue out loud. And then he says you have somebody with an interpretation. You have somebody with an interpretation. Well, the only thing that can refer to is the interpretation of a tongue. The only other time the word is used in the New Testament, it's used in 1 Corinthians 12.10, and it refers to the interpretation of tongues. Now, that's a long list of things. 
And it appears that people were coming to church and they were just uh, sort of sounding off with their particular manifestation of the Spirit. And that would be terribly disorderly. Because they're all verbal gifts. They're all vocalizing something about the truth. And if you have uh, ten different people, some of them speaking in different languages, communicating different things in different ways, all at once, it's obviously chaotic. It's obviously chaotic, and we know that chaos is a theme in the context based upon the verses that are just prior to this. So that's the issue. And that is precisely why the Apostle Paul says, uh, as sort of way of summing up his argument in verse 40, let everything be done properly and in order. You see, his point here is he's not rebuking them so much for the things they are doing, because they're right. There was nothing wrong with the speaking in the tongue. There was nothing wrong with the praising in the tongue. There was nothing wrong with the praying in the tongue. There was nothing wrong with the giving the revelation of the instruction. All those things are just fine because God is the one who ordained those gifts for that temporary period of time. And they were all being exercised under the power of the Holy Spirit. That wasn't wrong. What was wrong was how they were doing it. It wasn't being done properly. That's what Paul says. It wasn't done in a fitting way. He says it wasn't done in an orderly manner. It wasn't done according to a standard. You see, that's the problem. Now Paul says, let's fix it. And that's what he begins to do uh, with verse 27 and 28. He takes up the issue of tongues. How do you use tongues properly? Well, the first thing is you don't forbid them. Because Paul makes that clear. He says in verse 39, don't forbid to speak in tongues. That's not the solution. But the solution is very easy to figure out here. There are some constraints on how they are to be used. He says if anyone speaks in a tongue, it should be by two or the most three. So first of all, Paul's admonition is that you can't have more than two or three speakers in tongues in a worship service. We don't need four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten people speaking in tongues on Sunday morning. Paul says, we need two, or at the most, three. That's it. So there has to be a cap or a limit on the number of people who could actually exercise that. And then he says, a very common sense principle, that each are to speak in turn. Each are to speak in turn. In other words, uh, just because two or three people there have the capacity to speak in a tongue and to communicate the gospel relevantly in a language of somebody else who didn't speak Greek, he said it doesn't mean that all of you are supposed to stand up and start babbling at the same time. What you are to do, the Apostle Paul says, is each is to take turn. You see, that was the problem. You can see from that, Paul's prescription, that the problem was that on occasion at least, uh, there were some who were just standing up and, and sounding off. At the same time, Paul says, no, that's just clattering nonsense. And then he said, if you do it, you have to interpret. You have to interpret it. Otherwise, it makes no sense to the rest of the people who are listening. Uh, obviously, the people who heard the gospel being proclaimed in their language fully understood. They didn't need an interpreted. But the rest of God's people who were gathered together for worship that morning didn't get a thing out of it. And the Apostle Paul says, we don't waste anything in our services. 
If it's being vocalized and verbalized, all of God's people need to be blessed and edified by it. So he says, if you're going to speak in tongues, that's great, that's godly, it's God-ordained, it's under the Spirit, but you have to do it in an orderly manner. You have to interpret. He says, if you can't do that, if you don't have an interpreter present, he says, be quiet. That's the last instruction in verse 28. He says, if there's no interpreter, he must keep silent. Now, uh, just a quick point of application. I don't mean to pick on anybody, but I've been to services where this is not followed at all. Uh, So-called charismatic churches. And I I don't agree with the whole interpretation of tongues, but I've seen it happen lots of times where people just start sounding off. There's no interpretation. There's there's no following of principle here, just one at a time. Paul says, wrong. If you had these gifts, this is the way to be used. According to God's standard, one at a time, there must be interpretation and no more than two or three people maximum in one worship service. Well, then Paul takes up the problem of prophecy. How do you use prophecy in worship? And by the way, prophecy is the uh, supernatural ability to communicate divine truth. Uh, Prophets would receive direct revelation from God. It was infallible, it was inspired, it was inerrant, it was a divine communication to the church, and it needed to be used in a particular way. So verse 29 lays out the principle. Okay, Verse 29 lays out the principle for how prophecy is to be used. He says, let two or three prophets speak, and let the others utter judgment. So there you have it. You have two categories here, and that's very important because we're going to come back to the other category in a moment. There are two categories here. There is the category of uttering or speaking, and then there's the category of interpretation. There are two distinct uh, applications of this gift of prophecy. You have those who are to speak it, and then there were those who were to interpret it. Okay, So let's deal with this uh, problem of the speaking of the prophecy. And again, the rules are very similar. They're common sense. They're just like the ones with tongues. Uh, We learn, first of all, that there is a limitation on the prophets, you see. Let two or three prophets speak. And and Paul explains why in verse 31. He said, for if all prophesy, uh, for you can all prophesy one by one so that you may all learn and be exhorted. But see, there are rules to it. They have to prophesy one by one. There is a restriction as well. Let two or three speak. And the other thing that he says is if somebody is speaking uh, prophetically, don't interrupt them just because you feel moved by a prophetic impulse. That's what verse 30 says. If a revelation is made to another who is seated, the first one must keep silent. The best way to interpret verse 30 is to say that the person who is speaking... Uh, is not to be interrupted. I don't think it makes any sense, and there are some, but not very many, who take the other interpretation, that when somebody is speaking, if somebody else who is there that day feels moved by prophetic impulse, they're to stand up and start talking. That doesn't really fit with the flow here, and there's other ways to account for how Paul has worded that. I think that the most sensible interpretation is to say, don't interrupt that person that's disorderly. It's improper. So Paul says, these are your instructions about how to use the gift of prophecy. Now before we move on to the issue of interpretation of the prophecy, we have to make an application here. And I want you to notice uh, what the aim or what the issues are in terms of Paul addressing this issue. 
he says here that they are to uh, follow these particular rules so that all will be uh, instructed and all will be exhorted. That's verse 31. He says, you can all prophesy one by one so that you may all learn and be exhorted. You see, Paul tells us what's on his mind. At least one of the issues involved in why Paul is such a stickler about the regulative principle and why Paul is such a stickler about its precise application is because he says the aim or the fruit or the goal is important. The first aim is evident here. Apostle Paul says it's so that you will be discipled. It's the very same verb that Jesus uses in Matthew 28, 19, Manthano. You see, in a particular or most predominant place where the saints are to be discipled is in worship. That's it. And you can see what the big overriding issue or concern here is for the Apostle Paul is that people will be discipled, that God's people will be built up in the most holy faith. And so Paul says the necessary condition for you to be discipled is what? Order. That's the principle here, right? Verse 40. Do everything in an orderly manner. Do it according to the standard. But that implies something. Order is an essential and necessary condition for you to be discipled. Order in the worship is is foundational. Paul says all this multitasking stuff you are doing is a distraction and it's fruitless. There's an important principle for us to learn in that. And I believe that the Reformed in its best interpretation and application of this in its practice has been right on, which is to remove anything in the worship, obviously not prescribed, but anything that could be a distraction. You see. Maybe I can illustrate the point like this. I remember years ago taking a a class in secular college on Reformation history, and my professor happened to be uh, a liberal Anglican priest, and uh, he was sort of snidely uh, commenting on how the more austere Reformed uh, people applied their worship at the time of the Reformation era. And he says, well, you have Anglicanism in its worship, and Roman Catholicism in its worship, and even Lutheranism. It has the ceremonies, it has the cathedrals, it has all of the trappings of religion you see but then you have the reformed and he said how shall I describe it he said you know basically the reformed worship is four walls and a sermon you see what he's saying though four walls and a sermon he says uh, we don't add a a bunch of stuff Uh, the reformed don't want the word of God to get drowned out by the external trappings of the environment or all the ceremony That's irrelevant to the issue for why you're gathered together for worship. We don't need 15 songs. We don't need guitar solos. What we need is the Word of God to be central. Nothing can distract that. That's the principle here. The reason why Paul says, uh, stop doing this in a disorderly manner, just spouting off the psalm, a teaching revelation, interpretation, and so forth and so on, is because it was distracting, and it took attention away from the ability and the capacity for those gathered to single-mindedly focus on the Word. Because it was coming from so many different sources. 
He couldn't concentrate. Am I supposed to listen to the song? Am I supposed to listen to the tongue? Am I supposed to listen to the prophecy? Am I supposed to listen to the interpretation? It, it was distracting. Paul says, one at a time, each in order, so that all may be edified. Order is essential to discipleship. But it's also essential to something else, and you can see it here. Not hard to see either. Uh, he says, for admonition or to be exhorted. You see, another reason why we need to remove distraction from the worship service is not only so that we will be discipled, but that we will be told we're wrong. You see that? He says exhorted. It's to show somebody from the Word of God what God's standard is, and and if you're not doing it like this, you're doing it wrong. That implies uh, what we in the Reformed tradition call the first use of the law. Uh, we do that every Sunday when we worship God. We read the law, uh, not to show you uh, the path to a higher and uh, more fulfilling life. It's to show you that when you enter into the presence of God, He has a perfect, righteous, eternal standard. And you don't come into His presence unless you have met that standard. And what we all do is say, we didn't do it. We all admit what the law says is that we have fallen short of the glory of God. And we all cling to the blood and righteousness of Jesus Christ as the only foundation for our standing in God's presence. But you know, we need to hear that admonition of the law repeatedly, not so that we can just sit around feeling miserable and guilty. We should feel guilty. But then we should run to Jesus Christ. And I have a feeling sometimes we forget that in Reformed circles. I don't say that we have too much gospel or too much grace or too much Jesus or too much Christ or too much mercy. That's wrong. We should have have all the mercy and all the Jesus we can get at worship. But you know, the law is what drives us to Christ. And if you're tired of feeling guilty when you hear the law, uh, you're probably not understanding correctly because the law is to show me over and over and over and over again how I need to pour contempt on my pride. I need to see that all of my self-righteousness is just like a pile of filthy rags. I need to see that I I have failed to uphold God's standards. And then I need to look outside of me as fast as I can and run to Jesus Christ. You see, we have a problem with legalism and pharisaicalism in our churches just like in any other. And it comes from not listening to the admonition. The admonition is to show us we've done wrong. We can't learn that if we're distracted. If we're so worried about how we feel and the music's just right and the mood and the temperature and the atmosphere and everything else, we're distracted by a million different things, we don't hear the word, how are we going to be admonished? How are we going to learn of Jesus as the Savior for our sins? And then the one who joyfully, who sends us out in joy and gratitude to go now be a disciple and to live out that faith, to walk in that obedience which the law prescribes, you see. Can't do that if we're distracted. Paul says, I want you to follow this principle. Do all things properly and in an orderly manner so that you may learn and that you may be exhorted. Now that brings us to a a tough knot in our passage, okay? And I'm going to admit it up front. We've talked about this before. It's, It's a knot. It's a tough knot to untie in a sense. And it's found in verse 33 and following. 
Paul says here, uh, at the end of verse 33, as in all the churches of the saints, the women are to keep silent in the churches. By the way, that is the introduction to verse 34. The, the latter half of verse 33, it's a bad break in your translation. Uh, all the scholars agree about this, so I'm not giving you uh, Reverend Sotel's version of it. It's true. Uh, everybody agrees and concedes that as in all the churches is the heading for what he's going to say in verse 34 and 35. Here's the rub, though, because it says women are to keep silent in the churches. For they are not permitted to speak. And, and obviously the difficulty emerges, uh, for instance, with, with chapter 11, where the Apostle Paul talks about how it's, it's permissible for, for the women to, pro, to pray or prophesy in church with the head covered. And I know there's been all kinds of gymnastics to try to get out of that uh, clear import of that passage, but it, as we argued there, as we look at that particular passage, uh, we have to concede that God poured out gifts of prophecy uh, and the capacity to speak, on to- uh, speak in tongues upon women because the Word of God tells us He did. Uh, we don't have to dream that up or find it somehow in the passage uh, using uh, 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 interpretive tricks. It's there. So Paul said, if you're going to do that, you have to follow the rule of putting the head covering on. But but we said when we looked at that passage that it seems like it's rubbing up against something here in in chapter 14. Because Paul says, hey, the women are to keep silent in the churches. So uh, is Paul contradicting himself? Has the Holy Spirit uh, confused Paul? Well, the the answer is rather obvious. Uh, When you see this... uh, Admonition: The women are to keep silent. It cannot be an absolute uh, prohibition. Because if it were, that would mean women could never participate in the singing of the church. It would mean they could never participate in the confessing of the faith in the church. It would mean that they could never participate in the confessing of sin in the church. It would mean they could never be able to say amen out loud to give their assent or their agreement to the things that have been done or said in church. And we know that's not what Paul is saying here. So you say, well, what is Paul doing? Well, the fact of the matter is, I told you in verse 29, uh, what you have to see is there are two categories when it comes to addressing prophecy. He said, let the prophet speak. Category number one, dealing with prophecy, is there is utterance. Category number two, there is uh, interpretation. It seems as if what's happened when the prophets would speak directly from God, then somebody would get up and give a sermon on it. That's what is in view here. Paul is saying uh, that women are not permitted to engage in this uh, passing of judgment or preaching, as it were, because if they did that, Paul makes it plain. They would be violating the law. He says they are subject themselves just as the law says. And then he goes on to say, if they desire to learn anything, let them ask their own husbands at home. Now, there's been all kinds of ridiculous interpretations of this passage. Uh, One of them being that there was an excessive amount of chatter in the Corinthian churches among the women. I think that's a completely baseless interpretation. Paul says it pretty clearly here. They are to keep silent with respect to a sphere, which is preaching and teaching. He says, as the law says, turn over with me to First Corinthians, or rather, First Timothy two. Paul draws this out. Paul draws this out, uh, shedding light on the issue of what 
uh, women were not permitted to do in the worship and why. And, and remember that little phrase there, he says, they are to subject themselves as the law says. Uh, everybody acknowledges that you can't really go pin that exactly in a particular chapter and verse, okay? But, but Paul gives uh, a better clarification of what he means over here in, in, in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 2. Where he says, I do not allow, this is verse 12, a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. Obviously talking about the public worship situation. Nobody denies that. So it fits thematically with what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 14, right? But now notice this, 4. Now, you know as well as I do, we have to say this every time we come across fours and therefores and becauses and so thens and results that and after all and all these things, is that Paul is making arguments. He's stating a position and then he defends it. And here's what he says. The reason why uh, they must be quiet and receive instruction, the reason why he does not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man is because Adam was made first. Well, where is that particular truth found? The book of Genesis, which is broadly contained in the what? The law. Paul says he's going back to a creation ordinance. That's the law. The law of the creation ordinance says that the family structure will be honored in the church. We're not going to have a different structure or model of authority in the home versus the church. We can't have the situation where the man is the head of the home and is to be exercising proper, godly, spiritual, biblical headship at home and then he comes to the church and the entire order is turned upside down, inside out. No. The family structure, which is inherent in the very structuring of creation is to be followed in the church as well. That's why they're not permitted to preach or to teach or to exercise authority. So, coming back to our passage then, 1 Corinthians 14, Paul makes it clear. Uh, This is why they may not speak. The law says they're to subject themselves. They're not allowed to preach. They're not allowed to teach on the prophecy. Uh, That, to me, is the cleanest, uh, best interpretation of verses 34 and 35. But that doesn't uh, relieve us uh, of receiving exhortation as men. And Paul makes it clear, uh, something very important here to uh, men, and this is relevant and timely as it is Father's Day, uh, that they are to be prepared to... uh, speak about the sermon with their wife at home. That's what verse 35 says. If they desire to learn anything, that is the women, uh, let them ask their husbands at home. Well, John Calvin has a very wise quote here. He says, um, Paul does not prohibit them from consulting the prophets themselves, if necessary, for all husbands are not competent to give an answer in such a case. So I I respect the wisdom. I, I what. What Calvin is saying is, hey, you know, not every husband is probably capable of answering every single question. And he says, that's okay. And I agree with that. That's obviously very sensible. I can't even answer every question. Even after I've studied a passage for a whole week. Often there's lots of things I just, I don't quite get yet. Um, but, But there's a principle here 
And the first principle should be fairly obvious is that the men are to be paying attention in church. Uh, not alligator mouths open wide swallowing sheep. You know what I'm talking about. Eyes glazed over thinking about football or whichever version of football you watch. Um, Paul is saying that you are tasked by God, if you are uh, a man, to be prepared to spiritually bless your wife and your family at home because you have listened and been discipled at church. So as a friendly admonition this morning, one man to another, uh, God expects you this morning to pay attention. God expects you to remove the distractions. Stop worrying about football or golf or barbecuing or, or whatever. And what He wants of you is to be prepared to go home and to have a conversation with your family about the truth. You see, this is so important. Uh, the church will only be as strong as the families are. And that we have a strong family spiritually, according to God's Word, is that the head of the house, the man, has been discipled in the faith as he listens to the sermons so that he is able now to give account for what it is that he's heard. And so if we are to have a strong church, we have to have strong families. And if we have strong families, we need to have strong men who are paying attention and learning and acquiring an understanding of the faith that can catechize their families at home. This is the principal reason why, for the last several years in my ministry, I have paid particular attention to the men of the church. Precisely for this purpose is that God has appointed the men uh, to study the faith, to know what they believe, so that they are able to spiritually bless their families at home. And that's God's way. Because we have Paul telling us, plain as day from this passage here, and we can multiply others. If you are a man this morning, even if you're not married, this is to be a standard for you in terms of something to aspire to. That you are capable of spiritually blessing. Now, I realize that we come into this at different levels of understanding, so that means that we'll have to work hard at it. But that's okay. There's all kinds of tools that can be used to equip you for that. The confessions are the best place to start alongside the Word of God are the confessions to help us understand what the faith is so that we can grasp it, see it from the Word of God, and then talk about it. That's another reason why I'm always saying this, partly tongue-in-cheek, but it's truth. You should have your Bibles open when you come to church. No worse sound in the preacher's ears to hear all the Bibles go kathud in the pew in front of them. Ah, the word's done. Put that away. We don't need that anymore. I think, how in the world did we ever get that mindset? You know, our job is to sit here, and the pastor's job is to take you to verse 26, and the verse 27, verse 28, 29, 30, whatever in that passage, to tell you what's there. If the pastor's not doing that, he's not doing his job. If you're not following along, you're not doing yours either. Paul says that men are to be prepared to answer at home. That's enough meddling. Let's go to point number two. 
We saw what the principle looks like when it's applied. Now we see why the principle is so essential. We can move through this fairly quickly. The first reason why this principle is so essential is because it manifests the unity of the church, worshiping according to God's commands, worshiping in a way that's proper and in order manifests the unity of the church. You say, where do you get that from? And I said, well, look at verse 33. I already talked about this. The last part of verse 33 says, as in all the churches of the saints. Then Paul goes on to explain uh, what is the proper procedure and practice in all the churches of the saints. And here he says what it is. The women are to keep silent, for they're not permitted to speak, but to subject themselves just as the law also says. Paul says to the Corinthians, this is what everybody's doing. And the reason why everybody's doing it is because the law told them to do it this way. But what he does here is sort of uh, tweak them. Uh, Because obviously they're not doing this. That's the whole point of Paul making that jab. And then verse 36, you get this same note again. He says, what is it? Was it from you that the word of God first went forth? Or has it come to you only? You see, he's shaming them. You're not following the practices of the other churches. And the other churches are doing that because they've been commanded to do it by Jesus. And you've decided you're not going to do it. He said, who are you, you Johnny-come-lately Christians? You've been, you've been believers for five minutes. And now uh, you're telling uh, God how he should worship? You are completely overturning the order and the practice in all the churches, which is rooted in the very word of God. You are the only ones who've been blessed with this wisdom? You see... Uh, part of the critique is they're not following the principle, but the other part of the critique is by their, part, by their uh, moving on past the principle and not applying the principle, they're not in unity with the church. Well, you can see the principle undergirding the admonition. The churches are to manifest their unity in Jesus Christ in their worship. How is it possible for the churches to manifest their unity in worship? Well, that's a huge topic today. Well, I'll give you one very simple way the church manifests its unity in worship. It does only what God said to do. And it does it only as God said to do it. That's how you do it. You see, if God is the ultimate consumer of our worship, and He is, isn't He? Worship isn't for you in the sense that I get to do exactly what I like to do. That's not what it's for. If God, if you do things God's way, you will be blessed. Worship is for God. So God gets to tell us how He wants to be worshipped. And if God is prescribing how He wants to be worshipped in His Word, then it should be very simple then for the church to follow that. That's what Paul assumes here. We manifest our unity with the church by not being creative. See, that's one of the biggest problems right there. God didn't ask for our creativity in worship. He asked for our obedience. Obedience to what he said he desired, loved, longed for, and delighted in. We manifest our unity with the church By obeying God's commands for worship and following only 
those. The second thing, why this is so essential. First is because it manifests our unity with the body of Christ. And that's something we're exhorted and commanded to do in the word of God is to maintain unity. Unity is in truth. Unity is shown and manifested by doing what God commands. We'll be sure to do that if we do everything properly in an orderly manner. Secondly, how we worship tells the world what we think about God. How we worship tells the world what we think about God. Easiest way to do that is to see the very first word in verse 33. What is it? For. Whenever you see that, what are you supposed to do? You're supposed to look backwards. Paul is giving an explanation. Well, what's the explanation? Well, verse 32, he says, The spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. So whatever is said in verse 33 is designed to explain what Paul just said there. The spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. You could even back up to verse 31. All can prophesy one by one. The reason why all can prophesy one by one, people don't have to interrupt each other, talk over each other, talk past each other, drown each other out. The reason why they don't have to do that? Because the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. The spiritual impulse governed by and and brought uh, well up with the heart through the power of the Holy Spirit is subject to the control of that person. That's That's what Paul says. Now why? Why is it that it's that way? That the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. Well, Paul says, verse 33, for. Here comes the explanation. For God is not a God of confusion, but peace. You see what Paul is saying here? When you don't follow the principle prescribed in verse 40, do everything properly and in order. When you have people speaking past each other and over each other and around each other and drowning each other out and everybody participating all at once and not following what God has prescribed, Paul says, it's chaos. And you're telling everybody who's participating and everybody who's watching, that's what you think God is. Paul says... God is not a God of confusion. He is God of peace. The reason why Paul prescribes the regulative principle of worship for the church to do everything properly and in an orderly manner is because God must not be misrepresented. His glory must not be obscured. We must not lie to the world when we gather for worship and worship in chaotic disorderly way and by that tell the world God authorizes mob disorder and chaos God is a God of peace God is composed not restless God is orderly not chaotic God is self-controlled not frenzied worship expresses what we think about God and if we believe God is a God of peace then we testify it by doing what? The theme verse of Presbyterians. Everything must be done properly and in order. Let's pray.
Father, we thank you for your word this morning, which clarifies.